Well, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Tim Chafee. Uh, I think we go back 17 or 18 years. If you didn't know, Tim used to pastor in the area, two different churches, and he taught at Cornerstone. And I was, uh, I was always kind of rooting for Tim. I was so excited. His first book came out and then got hired at Answers in Genesis. And you were, I think you were like the popcorn maker and ticket taker, right? Your first job. <laughs> he was an editor there. And now, praise the Lord, um, he's had, you know, this really important uh, footprint uh, impact on the ARC uh, project there. And Tim loves this subject about creation and the, the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, but he loves this topic. And ever, ever since I met you, I've known you love this topic, but he loves the topic because he loves the Lord who authored this topic. So that really is uh, Tim's heartbeat. So please come, Tim. Very excited to have you. All right, thank you, Rich. Well, good morning. That's on, right? All right, good. Uh, well, it's great to be back with you guys. Uh, some of you may not remember me being here. I was here five years ago, and Rich wasn't here that day. He was taking vacation. <laughs> but yes, we do go way back, and uh, it's great to be with Grace Church again. Um, so where to start? Yeah, uh, you already gave a good introduction, and uh, we, we've shared quite a few things before. We've had joint services before, and uh, just it's great to be back in this area. So Rich mentioned that I started at Answers in Genesis. That was back in 2010. I've been there almost 11 years now, which is hard to believe that I've been out of Wisconsin that long. This is still home to me. Um, I haven't, I'm not a Kentucky person, even though that's where I live. Um, but uh, I've been the, for the last almost eight years now, I've been the content manager for the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. That means I get to write the exhibits that go in there. And so if you've been to either one of those places in the last several years and you like what you read, I did a good job. If you don't like it, well, come and see me afterwards. We need to have a chat. <laughs> You're going to learn to like it. Uh, <laughs> or I had a bad editor, one of the two. All right. Well, before we jump into this topic, um, we open up a new exhibit at the Creation Museum, actually several new exhibits. If you haven't been there in the last three years, it's very different. Uh, ever since the Ark Encounter opened in um, 2016, in fact, it was just almost five years ago this week that I was here, and that was about two months before the Ark opened, and I'll share a little bit about that in a moment. But because of that, we were averaging, before the COVID thing, we were averaging a million people a year at the Ark Encounter, and a lot of those people wanted to go to the Creation Museum which was built for like a maximum of 400,000 a year, and suddenly we're getting five or 600,000 a year. We had to widen some of the hallways. We had to redo some of the exhibits. We used to have most of the people coming through were people who agreed with our message and going through the Creation Museum. And so they already understood a lot of the things, and we could just kind of teach in depth what we wanted to. But now, with so many people coming through the Ark Encounter, who, some of them aren't even believers. Uh, many of them don't know the message very well. We've had to revamp how we do things at the Creation Museum, make it a little... Um, a little more basic, but still teach the things we want to teach, just make it a little more accessible to everybody. And so we've been revamping a lot of the museum. So it's very different, and I would say it's better because they got the writing, it's just spectacular. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, actually, what's nice is that uh, we have more time to work on the exhibits. You know, when we first opened the Creation Museum, it was here's this huge building, you have two years, build all the exhibits, go. You know, and I wasn't there at the time. With the Ark Encounter, I was there. It's, you have two years, 35 exhibits, go. And you can't spend a whole lot of time on each one of them when you're doing that. Um, they're still very well done, but if you look at the latest exhibits we've done, and those of you at the camp got to see on Friday night, you got to see the Fearful and Wonderfully Made exhibit. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's extraordinary. And those of you who are going to go down for the second service today, 
you'll get a, you can take a little glimpse of that. We've got some, Dennis has put out some pictures, and you'll want to take a look at that, and you'll see the amazing talent of the people that I work with. Uh, they are just incredibly talented with the, their artistic ability and design work, and I just sit there and type in Microsoft Word and study the Bible, um, which I love doing, um, but when they do a behind-the-scenes video, guess who's not really on there very much? Hey, look, there's Tim typing. Isn't that exciting? Here's this person making this incredible animal. So, uh, but our new exhibit, one of the new exhibits is called Starting Points, and I want to kind of go through that with you today. And there's a reason for that. When we were opening up the Ark Encounter, which was two months after the last time I was here, um, we had protesters show up at the Ark on opening day. And there were maybe about 80 to 90 of them, atheist agnostic protesters. They had organized their national conference around the opening of the ark because they wanted to be there to protest. And they were holding up all these signs, this boat won't float. And of course, it looked like a little bathtub fairy tale ark. Of course, that one's not going to float. And this one's not going to float either. It's not designed to float. Um, it is a large building that looks like an ark. Um, it's anchored to concrete towers. That's not really good for flotation. Um, but if it were designed this way as a ship, yeah, it could float. But um, they, they were there to protest and try to draw attention to themselves and to distract from what we were doing and to lie to a lot of people about what was there. Um, these are people who will oftentimes uh, go there on Sunday morning, take pictures of an empty parking lot and say, nobody goes to the Ark Encounter, it's failing. Well, yeah, nobody goes when we're closed. Isn't that amazing? It's dishonest. Now, let me back up a little bit. When I talk about this, I'm not saying that every single atheist and agnostic is like this. Okay, these are the activists. These are the ones who are out there and very vocal. But um, there's a philosophy behind their belief system, and this is something that became very clear that day as we were uh, talking. I had a friend call me up and said, Hey, Tim, I'm organizing a protest. The protesters protest. And what I want to do is I want to buy them some food from an area restaurant, and I want to bring a bunch of drinks to them because it's going to be a hot day out there. It was like 90 degrees. And um, I, just want to, I just want to show them the love of Christ. And he said, since you're, you live in that area where the food's going to be from, can you pick it up and bring it down and maybe stick around for about an hour? And, um, you know, if they have any questions, I'll introduce you. And if, you have any, if they have any questions, you can talk to them because you wrote the signs. And I thought, oh, it's my first day off in like six months, um, which is not quite true. I had a couple of days off when I was here speaking. And those are my days off before the opening of the ark. We were kind of working around the clock to get it open. And I'm not complaining. It was, it was neat. And it was what we signed up for. Um, so I said, yeah, I'll do that. And so I got down there, and um, right away, uh, my friend, actually Eric is on the right side there, he stood up and said, hey, I just real quickly want to tell you guys, this is Tim Chafee, he wrote the signs of the ark, if you have questions, you can ask him. And right away, um, I wanted to say Jonathan, that's not him, Silverman, the guy who was the head of the American Atheist Society at that point, stands up and says, don't talk to him, don't ask him anything. Wait, free thinkers aren't free to ask questions and to think? And um, after a few minutes, a couple of guys came over and said, you know, we don't listen to him. We have questions. And we talked for about an hour. And then I got dragged into another conversation. We talked for about an hour and a half. And then some other people. And I was getting ready to leave after about three hours. And my friend said, oh, you can't leave yet. And I said, why? And he said, because we're going to take 20 of these guys on a tour through the ark and we want you to lead it. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, lead 20 atheists and agnostics through the ark on opening day? I would love to do that. And so that's what we did. I took this picture uh, right before we went in. And all of them but one were very respectful. Uh, we went through the ark, and, and I'll just share this one story. There's one uh, woman in the group who was very, um, she was quite rude, and she would take a lot of shots at me, personal attacks, and we were on the bus on the way over. She's like, so you're the one that write, wrote all the signs? And I said, yeah. And she's like, are you a 
professional writer. And I said, well, I'm not an English major, if that's what you mean. And well, then how come you're writing the science? I said, well, I've published over a dozen books and I get paid to write. I've written hundreds of articles and everything. Does that make me a professional writer? And besides, I have, we have English majors who are editors who are reviewing my stuff. So does that count? And so she just continued to take little digs at me and at, at everything we had done. And at one point we get in the ark and she said, so are you guys going to make the boat rock and everything like that? And I said, do you want us to add animal smells too and make everybody <laughs> sick the whole time? And, and she just kept on taking these little shots and we get up to the second deck and she says, so you're the writer, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, I saw three typos back there. And I said, no, you didn't. And she said, you're right, I didn't. Um, and so this is with like 20 people around. And I said, let me ask you a question, because I've written both fiction and nonfiction. I said, are you, are you an editor? Or I said, are you a writer? She said, no, I'm editor. editor. And I said, oh, um, fiction or nonfiction? And I was not trying to set her up at all, I promise. I just know, as a writer of both novels, as fiction and nonfiction, they're very different. And editors have to look for things that are very different. It's not just proofreading. So I, just, I was just curious. And she said, I'm the editor-in-chief for the American Atheist Magazine. And I said, oh, fiction. <laughs> It just, it just popped in there. <laughs> and she didn't ask another question. She didn't say another word the rest of the time. And several people in that group came up to me and thanked me. They said she was making us look so bad and we were trying to be respectful. And they were. The rest of them were very kind and were being respectful. Yeah, they disagreed with what we were doing. They thought it was ridiculous what we were doing. But they were, because we took three hours to get to know them out there, we had earned their respect, and we got to talk to them. And uh, on the top deck, I got to do a Q&A with them for a little while. And look at, their, look at their body language here and in this picture. Notice they're not screaming and shouting. You know what went into the newspaper the next day? Out at the protest site, there was one guy who my friend had asked, please don't come because he knew what he was going to do, but he showed up anyways with signs that he held up right in front of people who were protesting. He put it right in their face saying, you're going to burn in hell. So he would do that. The rest of the people were back there having good discussions with people for three hours. Anyways, during that time at one point, uh, Silverman, the guy who was the head of the American Atheist Set, got right up in Eric's face for just like a second. He just ran right up there, and right then they snapped a picture, and that's what goes in the newspaper. But it wasn't like that at all. It was like this for a lot of it. Now, not immediately when we first got there, but as time went on, this is what it was like. Now, I love their expressions in this one. And I, I enjoyed this so much because we got to get to know them. We treated them as people who are made in the image of God. Because you know why? That's who they are. Okay? They are people who are made in God's image, and yet they are deceived on a very important issue. And so we treated them with gentleness and respect. And after this, uh, some of them had to leave because they were having their own uh, annual meeting. But another, about half of them stuck around, and I stayed there for another two or three hours talking to more of them. That was opening day at the Ark Encounter for me, and I would do that every day of my life if I could. It was fantastic. So the philosophy that's behind their belief system, that's what I want to share with you today, um, the difference between this issue on creation evolution, because it is not what so many people think. Our culture wants you to believe that this is science versus faith, that it's fact versus belief, and it, it's not that at all. This is a worldview about the past, present, and future versus a worldview about the past, present, and future. Oftentimes we think it's just a world, uh, you know, it's just something about the past. No, it's not. 
If you believe in creation, that God made everything the way that Scripture teaches, that informs your worldview for the past, it informs how you live today, and it informs what's going to happen in the future. If you believe that all of this just happened by chance, and we're just here as some sort of cosmic accident, it's not just a belief about the past. It impacts how you live today, and it impacts what is going to happen in the future. And I want to go through some of that with you today. One of these starts with man's ever-changing ideas. How often do we hear, in fact, we do Answers News at the Creation Museum every Monday and Wednesday. Uh, if you're not watching that, you can tune in on Facebook at 2 o'clock Eastern, uh, either on Ken Ham's page or on Answers in Genesis page or on YouTube. And what we do is we cover like eight news articles that are from the previous week. And we talk about those. And almost every single week it's, hey, this new discovery rewrites everything we knew about human evolution. This new discovery rewrites everything we knew about this. It's all the time. And yet, they teach it in the textbook, this is fact, we've proven this, and then they change it the next week. It's constantly changing. But God's word doesn't change. Okay, it's true from the very beginning to the very end. It's the word of the one who knows all things, the word of the one who has always been, the word of the one who cannot lie. And he told us what he did. So we're going to start on that foundation. The other one starts on man's ever-changing ideas. So let's just take a look at some of the differences, and then I'm going to go through, and what I want to do is show you... Um, passages from scripture that teach the biblical worldview and quotes from evolutionists, from atheistic evolutionists. Now I know there are some Christians who think that God used evolution. I'm speaking specifically today mostly about um, biblical creation and uh, like an atheistic evolution. I want you to see the difference in those worldviews. And there's really no way to faithfully handle the text and combine those two. And you'll see why as we go. So if we're created by God, as scripture says, that was just thousands of years ago, but if it's time and chance, it's billions of years. Uh, if we're created by God, then man is unique. We're made in God's image. This is what we talked about on Friday night at the, at the camp with the Fearfully and Wonderfully Made exhibit. We were talking about that. But if time and chance, if this evolutionary view is true, we're just an animal. Okay? We're no different than the apes. We're no different than an ant. Okay? And there is no special purpose for human beings. In fact, oftentimes, people who hold this view put humans below the animals. Ask somebody if, what, if they had a chance to save a, a, in a house that's burning, if they had a chance to save their dog or a human being, what are they going to pick? A lot of times they'll say the dog. From a biblical perspective, which one? I don't care how much you love your dog and how great dogs are, they're not as valuable as a human being because they're not made in God's image. And it, obviously if it's a cat, that's a no-brainer. You save the person, okay? <laughs> that's not even a question. But dogs, yeah, I can understand why that would be a struggle for some. All right. But if we're created by God, then the universe has a purpose. There is a reason why it exists. There's a reason why we are here. But if time and chance, there is no purpose. It's just an accident. There is no ought that you should be doing this. If we're created by God, then it was a perfect world originally that had been marred by sin. We have wrecked this world. But if time and chance is true, Death has always been here. It's just part of the equation. Suffering will always be, has always been, and there is no way to overcome that. If we're created by God, then life came from life. Intelligence came from intelligence. Information came from information. That's all we ever observe. But time and chance, the evolutionary view, life came from non-life. We've never observed that. Intelligence from non-intelligence. We've never observed that. Information from non-information. We've never observed that. And they call that science. That's a fairy tale. And yet, this is treated as science. So let's take a look at several different big questions and see how these two different worldviews answer it. And these first ones have to do with our views of the past. Did dinosaurs and humans coexist? According to the Bible, dinosaurs and all other land animals would have been made on day six, the same day that man was created, same day he made Adam and Eve. 
one day after the flying creatures. Thus, dinosaurs lived at the same time as man and did not evolve into birds because birds were made before dinosaurs. Do you see the difference? So God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that creep along the ground according to their kinds. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So there's the, the biblical foundation for that. But what about the other worldview? What about the naturalistic evolutionary view? Dinosaurs and people are separated by over 60 million years, so they have never lived at the same time. Or, some, what they're saying today, birds are dinosaurs. In fact, they've reclassified them. Now they say you have avian dinosaurs and non-avian dinosaurs. So today they just call birds avian dinosaurs. So they used to say dinosaurs and people never lived together. Now they say, yeah, they do. They're in their backyard. They're flying around, that kind of thing. Um, so there's two different ways they can look at that. Here's one, non-bird dinosaurs, see how they describe them, lived about 245 to 66 million years ago in a time known as the Mesozoic Era. This was many millions of years before the first modern humans, Homo sapiens, appeared. Here's another one. We keep dinosaurs as pets, eat them, enjoy looking at them in nature and zoos, and treat them as mascots of some of our favorite sports teams. Of course, she's talking about birds. Okay, so they've reclassified how they view dinosaurs and just talk about them as, as though birds are dinosaurs. Um, birds are very different. All right, how about this? Was there ever a worldwide flood? Well, according to the Bible, the flood in Noah's day covered the entire globe. Every single air-breathing, air, uh, land-dependent creature that was not on board the ark perished. The Bible says, And the waters increased greatly on the earth and covered all the high hills under the whole heaven. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them to 15 cubits deep. And all creatures that moved on the earth died. Birds, cattle, beasts, all creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the land drowned. It was dead. Okay? But from an evolutionary worldview, there never has been a global flood on the earth. There have been many large regional floods, but nothing like what is described in the Bible. Now here's what's interesting. They are willing to accept a worldwide flood on Mars. Why? Well, because we see features on Mars that look like they were carved by water. You have huge canyons. You have little gullies and everything. You have gravel that's gathered together like you see in stream beds and everything. It looks like there was water at one point there. And they're willing to accept massive flooding on Mars. But you can't... We're, right now, we, there's no known liquid water on Mars. Is there some liquid water on Earth? Yeah. 70% of it's covered with water. Okay? And yet you can't have a global flood here. Why? because the Bible says there was a worldwide flood. If the Bible never taught a worldwide flood, every single geology textbook in the world today would say there was a worldwide flood because that's what we see evidence of all over the place. But here's what we read. There's simply no good evidence that a global flood ever happened. The story of Noah is self-contradictory, uncorroborated by independent historical evidence, and is generally at odds with everything we know about our planet's geology, biology, and species diversity. Um, it's, it's self-contradictory. No, actually, it's very cohesive. Uh, uncorroborated by independent historical evidence. What would you accept as independent historical evidence? Would over 500 flood legends from around the globe from ancient cultures count, or you don't get to count those? Is it because you didn't have newspaper reporting or you didn't have video cameras at the time taking you know, videos of it? What counts as evidence for this? Well, how about the geology? Why do we see in the Grand Canyon this Coconina sandstone on the top and the Hermit Shale on the bottom and this paraconformity right in between them. Notice there's no erosion or anything between those two layers. According to the evolutionists, their time scale, there are six million years of history missing there. So you want me to believe there was a place on Earth that had no erosion 
No wind, no rain, no snow, nothing for six million years? Oh, that's not a big problem. How about the rest of the ones in the Grand Canyon? There's another one with 14 million years missing, another one with 100 million years missing. And you find this around the globe. And how about this? Take a look at those rocks. Notice how there are a whole bunch of layers there. By the way, those are people standing there just to give you the idea of the scale. Notice how the rocks are running vertically like this, and then they curve, and then they go up like this, and it's almost like a W. And notice how they're not fractured and broken all the places where they are curved. How do you curve rock without breaking it? If these things were laid down slowly over hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years, it's rock, solid rock, right? With all these layers, and something has to force it upwards to bend it up like that. But when you do that, what happens to the rock? It cracks and breaks and fractures, and that didn't happen here. Meaning, all of these things were laid down rapidly, like in a global flood, and they were still soft when you get this upwork that pushing them upward, and they curved without all the fracturing and breaking. So which one did the evidence support? And by the way, those rock layers that we see, that we find in the Grand Canyon, we also see some of those exact same layers in northern Wisconsin. We also see the exact same layers in Africa. We see the exact same layers in Israel, laid down at the same time. Meaning it was not a local flood that did that, it was a global flood that did that. So we have all sorts of evidence for a global flood. But see, this is not a matter of, as what we're going to find out, it's not a matter of what did the evidence say, because the evidence gets spun or interpreted according to that worldview. So your starting point will determine where you're going to end up when you're looking at the evidence. Because it's that philosophy, it's that worldview, that lens that you're viewing everything through. And the same thing is true for the evolution. Now, they will not admit that this is a worldview battle. It's always going to be science versus faith with them, because as soon as they say, yes, it's a worldview, the, the debate's over. So they can't acknowledge that, and they won't. But it's very clear that it is. Take a look at this one. Are the human, quote-unquote, races equal? The reason I put that in quotes is because we don't believe there are different races. All human beings are made in God's image and are descendants of Adam. So there's no basis for racism from a biblical perspective. We all go back to Noah and his wife, too. We are all made in God's image. He had made from one man every nation of men to dwell on the face of all the earth, Paul says in Acts 17. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So we all go back to Adam and Eve. We are all made from one man. But how about the evolutionary worldview? Now, most evolutionists say reject racism, thankfully. So I'm not trying to say that every evolutionist is a racist. That's not what I'm saying. Their worldview is, their philosophy is, but they themselves may not be. Um, here is Stephen Jay Gould, who, by the way, is not a creationist, was not. He is now. He passed away back in 2002, I think. Um, and maybe it was 03. But he was a Harvard professor and believed in evolution. He believed in what's called punctuated equilibrium. So not Darwinian slow and gradual evolution, but more like things happen very quickly at certain times. Here's what he said, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. Huh, why would that be? The litany is familiar, cold, dispassionate, objective, modern science shows us that races can be ranked on a scale of superiority. If this offends Christian morality or a sentimental belief in human unity, so be it. Science must be free to proclaim unpleasant truths. What were those unpleasant truths? Well, according to Charles Darwin, by the way, notice he's not canceled in our culture today. Why don't you take a look at what he says in his book, Descent of Man. This is not Origin of Species, this is something that came out 12 years later. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes, the human-like apes, will no doubt be exterminated. 
the break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider, for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state, as we may hope, even than the Caucasian, and some ape as low as a baboon instead of as now between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla. What's he saying? You got darker skin, you're not as human as, we, as those with lighter skin. That's what Darwin wrote. This is what Ernst Haeckel wrote, and he's well-known as well. I'll show you why he's well-known. Apes, on the contrary, can grasp in this way with the hind foot as well as the forefoot, and were therefore regarded as four-handed. Many tribes, however, among the lower races of men, especially many Negro tribes, use the foot in the same way as the hand. He's not canceled. In fact, they still use his drawings in textbooks, don't they? Those faked drawings that he used to promote the idea that in the womb, human embryos go through an evolutionary stage when they go through like a fish-like stage and all these other stages of evolution while you're in the womb. So it's okay to abort because it's okay to kill a fish. It's okay to kill other things. Well, you can kill babies too then. This is the philosophy. And those drawings were faked. Are humans and apes related? Well, from a biblical perspective, God created the land animals, including apes, on the sixth day. Then he made man in his image from the dust of the ground, not from an ape-like ancestor. You cannot combine the evolutionary worldview with the Bible on that point alone. You can't say, yes, we came from the apes, when the Bible said, no, we, God made man from the ground. It's very different. And God gave man dominion. God said, let, man, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every creature that moves on the ground. We are given dominion over the apes and all the other animals. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. From naturalistic evolution, humans and apes are primates. We're both descended from a common ape-like ancestor. Uh, so this is a, a chance to clear up something. Don't use this argument. Don't say, hey, oh, if evolution was true and man came from the apes, how can we still see apes today? Don't use that argument. That's not what they believe. They believe that apes and chimpanzees and humans are more like cousins. We all come from a common ape-like ancestor. Okay? The human lineage diverged from that of apes at least 7 million years ago and maybe as long as 13 million years ago. The earliest undisputed members, undisputed members of our lineage to regularly walk upright were the Australopithecines. I'm pretty sure it's disputed. Uh, of which the most famous is Lucy species, Australopithecus afarensis. Lucy herself is dated to 3.2 million years ago. All right, well, how about this one? Who is Jesus? Well, according to Scripture, Jesus is the Son of God. He is our Creator, He's our Savior, He's our Lord, and I think we could spend the rest of our lives talking about who He is. Um, so I can't belabor this point this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then he went and he lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross for our sins, and then he rose from the dead three days later, and he was raised, or he ascended into heaven, and he sits there as our, as our high priest, interceding on our behalf. And we can go on and on and on. And how about this? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He created all things that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. According to the naturalistic evolutionary view, who is he? He can't be all those things because there is no God. So most atheists would believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. Okay, you do have a very vocal minority today who are making YouTube videos and making blog posts and everything, saying he never existed. Um, but even though most acknowledge his existence, they'll reject his deity, obviously, and his miracles, obviously, because you can't have a supernatural. Um, but the ones that, 
deny his existence. I've got a whole talk just on that. Uh, this is from Tim O'Neill. He's a historian in Australia, and he's got a website called History for Atheists. He is an atheist. But what he does is he critiques fellow atheists and says, you guys stop using that dumb argument. It's so obvious Jesus existed. And he'll, it's pretty fun to read his page. Uh, but here's what he says. The consensus of scholars, including non-Christian scholars, is that a historical Jesus most likely existed and that later stories about Jesus Christ were told about him. The idea that there was no such historical person at all and that Jesus Christ was purely a purely mythical figure has been posited in one form or another since the 18th century, but it is not taken seriously by anyone but a tiny handful of fringe scholars and amateurs. And this is one of the nicest statements he says about the people who <laughs> say that Jesus never existed. So they do believe, many of them believe that Jesus existed, but he's nothing special. Okay, from our worldview, he's everything. This is another area in our exhibit. This one where we talk about the different views of our present and different views of our, of our future, and that's where I want to continue here. Why are we here? Okay, from a biblical perspective, why are we here? God created man in his image and gave man authority over the world. We are to love God and love one another and reflect God's glory to this world. God created man in his own image. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and everything that every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We find that very difficult sometimes, don't we? But that's what we're called to do. But according to the naturalistic evolutionary worldview, why are we here? We're just a cosmic accident. It's just time and chance. There is no purpose. And it's not just me saying it. Here's Michael Shermer. There is no higher purpose. It's left to us. We must create our purpose. That's the only meaning we have in this universe. Yeah, so a meaningless being is supposed to create meaning. Who cares? What if you decide your meaning is different than what you decide? There's no ultimate standard. There's no right or wrong. You just get to pick whatever you want to do. And you get to create meaning for yourself. Here's Jerry Coyne. Uh, yes, secularism does propose a physical and purposeless universe. See that? Secularism does propose a physical and purposeless universe, but he's going to try to get around that. And many, but not all of us, accept the notion that our sense of self is a neuronal illusion. It's just an illusion from the brain. But although the universe is purposeless, see that there, there's no purpose. He's saying it over and over again. Our lives aren't. <laughs> what? This conflation of a purposeless universe, that is one not created for a specific reason, with purposeless human lives is a trick that the faithful use to make atheism seem nihilistic and dark. Well, it is. But we make our own purposes, and they're real. Really? A purposeless being in a purposeless universe makes his own purpose, and it's very real. He's deceiving himself. But at least he's honest enough to admit that it is purposeless. So why do people suffer and die from these two worldviews? Well, the Bible tells us God made a perfect world, but man's rebellion brought death, suffering, and disease into this world. God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. And then because of sin, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In painful toil you shall eat of, eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. you are, for you are he says you're going to die. For you are dust, and to dust you are going to return. Romans 5.12, Just as sin entered the world and, uh, through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. But what's going to happen to death? Someday death will die. And I can't wait for that day. Because our Lord conquered death, someday we will conquer death as well. And someday there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, and no more death.
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But what about from a naturalistic evolutionary worldview? Death, suffering, and disease has always been part of the evolutionary history of this planet. As, as soon as there was life, there was death. It's always been that way. Here's Richard Dawkins. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying by starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. Wow, hope that cheered you up today. <laughs> but he's being honest from his worldview. There is no justice, as we'll see. There is no hope. There's just suffering and death. And Christians want to combine scripture with that worldview? Strange. How do we know right from wrong? Well, God is the standard of what is right and wrong. Morality is rooted in the perfectly good nature of the unchanging, all-powerful God of the Bible. Sometimes we get this a little bit wrong. It's like, well, whatever God says is right. It's actually rooted in who he is. It goes back one step further than that. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? But how about right and wrong from an evolutionary worldview? The individual or the society decides what is right and wrong, and that can vary dep uh, depending on the individual or the society. If it's up to us to decide what's right, well, then I guess it kind of might makes right, right? You know, if, if I decide I want to pull out a gun and shoot somebody, I can do that because that's what I decide is right. And people say, no, no, you can't do that because society determines. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so then I know people say, oh, that's a fallacy. You can't bring up Hitler. Actually, it works perfectly in this case because Nazi Germany decided that Jews are non-persons, so it was okay for them to kill six million of them. That's what their society decided, so was it okay? Um, let me ask that again. Was it okay? No, no okay? It wasn't okay. Um, not at all. But from their worldview, from the naturalistic evolutionary worldview, the people, individuals decided that, the society decided that, so how could it be wrong? Morality, this is Michael Roos, uh, morality, or more strictly, our belief in morality, notice that, because he doesn't believe there's an objective morality, just our belief in morality, is merely an adaptation put in place to further our reproductive ends. Hence, the basis of ethics did not lie in God's will or in the metaphorical roots of evolution or any other part of the framework of the universe in an important sense uh, ethics, as we understand it, is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes. What a great line. That's, their, that's, that's just a trick. We don't really have it. We just think that we do. To get us to cooperate, it is, an ex, it is without external grounding. Ethics is produced by evolution, but not justified by it, because like Macbeth Dagger, it serves a powerful purpose without existing in substance. There's no such thing as ethics. We just believe that there is. So there is no right and wrong in the naturalistic evolutionary worldview. And do we see that in our culture today? Everybody deciding what's right for themselves? How can you get upset with school shootings or anything like that? If you tell people they're just animals and it's okay for the lion to kill the zebra, how is it wrong for a person to kill another person? They're just animals too. Is there any hope? Well, the Bible tells us that God put on human flesh, stepping into history as a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sins. Those who believe in him will be forgiven and live eternally with God. That is the greatest hope. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then Revelation 21, 3 and 4, Look, the dwelling place of God is with man, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning, crying, or pain, for the former things have passed away. Yeah, we have the ultimate hope. We have the ultimate retirement plan because of what Christ has done. But how about the other view? Naturalistic evolutionary worldview. There is no hope of overcoming suffering, disease, or death. Someday you will die and your body will rot. There will be no afterlife. Every person, whether kind or murderous, will cease to exist with no final justice. Ultimately, life is meaningless. Here's Richard Dawkins again. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. You wonder why he's not a motivational speaker. Okay. <laughs> so inspiring. But that's their system. There is no hope. You're just going to die and you're going to rot. What happens when we die? Let's take a look at different views of the future. What happens when I die? According to scripture, every person has been created to live forever, either eternal life with the creator or eternal separation from him in the lake of fire. You got a choice. Okay? Some people say that's narrow-minded. No, you have a choice between two places. The naturalistic evolutionary worldview gives you no choice. Everybody goes to the same place, you rot. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that man was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's the two options. Believe in Jesus Christ or reject him. Eternal life or eternal separation from him in the lake of fire. But what happens to you according to naturalistic evolution? There is no afterlife for anyone. All people will eventually die and cease to exist. Here's what Ian Sample says, or I'm sorry, Stephen Hawking said this in an interview with Ian Sample. I regard the brain of the computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. And he was widely regarded as one of the most intelligent men in the world. Well, guess what? He knows beyond any shadow of a doubt that God exists. Because he passed away a few years ago. And he knows the truth now, but it was too late for him. And there's no hope for him anymore. How about Will Provine? He said, there are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain I'm going to be dead. He goes on and talks about how there's no free will either. There's no choice or anything. It's all just nihilistic. This, this, that's what their system is. Because you're just a bag of chemicals. Will justice be served? God is perfect in his love, and perfect love demands perfect justice. Justice will ultimately be served, and here's how it was done. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ, God himself, the Son of God, became one of us and went to the cross and died for you and for you and for you, for you and for me. He took our sins upon himself so that God himself took the punishment so that his justice could be poured out. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tomb will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's what Jesus said. Okay, so some will be resurrected to eternal life, some will be resurrected and be judged for all eternity. Will justice be served according to natural, naturalistic evolution? Ultimately, there is no justice. Some people, yeah, they'll pay for their crimes in the present world. Sometimes they get caught and sometimes they serve prison time or whatever else it might be. But other criminals will get away with their crimes. The mass murderer suffers the same fate as the most loving and kind person. 
Adolf Hitler, same fate as Mother Teresa. Seems just, doesn't it? Or as Billy Graham and Adolf Hitler, same fate. So in other words, if that's your future, do whatever you want with your life. Get what you can out of it because you only get one shot at this. Okay? Live for self. Live for pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I think we read that in the scriptures as far as a bad philosophy. But that is the naturalistic evolutionary view. That's not what scripture says because we will stand before our creator someday and we'll have to give account for our lives. Christopher Hitchens says, the concept of, an a- of the afterlife really functions as a substitute for wisdom. It functions as a substitute for really absorbing our predicament, which is that everything, everyone is going to die. There are circumstances that are just catastrophically unfair. Evil sometimes wins and injustice sometimes win, wins. And that the only justice we are going to find in this world is the justice we make. But here's a question for the naturalistic evolution. What is justice? Justice means that something should happen to people who do bad. But from an atheistic perspective, why should anything happen to somebody who does bad? Because there is no such thing as bad. There is no such thing as should. Everything just is. Notice how often they're borrowing and stealing from a biblical worldview to try to make their own case. They have to assume God God exists and that there's an ultimate standard in order to even argue for these things. And yet they deny him with every breath. So how will it all end? The world will be burned up and the Lord will create a new heaven and a new earth that will be filled with righteousness. As you look forward to the day of God, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens and the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. How about from the naturalistic evolutionary view? The universe will eventually undergo a heat death. When all usable energy has been used up, all life will end. Indeed, all chemical, biological, and physical processes will cease. And here's what Christopher Hitchens said in a debate with William Lane Craig. We don't particularly welcome the idea of the annihilation of either ourselves as individuals. The party will go on and we'll have left and we're not coming back. Or the entropic heat death of the universe. We don't like the idea, but there's a good deal of evidence that suggests that it's going to happen. I would say, no, I know somebody who has gone to the grave and come back and has told us exactly what happens. And he's the one who made all things, and he told us what's going to happen. I'm going to trust him rather than the people who are doing everything they can to try to justify unbelief in him. So to summarize these things, it is a battle between two different worldviews that have very much to say about our, pra- our past, our present, and our future. And too many people have been led to believe this is a, an issue about science versus faith about the past. And that's not at all what it is. It's an entire worldview that informs everything we do. Bill Nye, you know, the guy who plays the science guy, not actually a scientist, he said this, the earth is just a speck of sand in the universe and there's no cavalry coming over the hill to rescue it. Well, Bill Nye, that's true. There may not be a cavalry coming over to rescue it, but there was a Calvary where the Son of God came and gave his life for each one of us, including Bill Nye including these other people that we've been quoting. So that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then three days later, he rose from the grave, showed that he has power over sin and death, power over the grave, and giving us the hope and the guarantee of eternal life to all who believe. There is hope. There is justice. There is mercy. There is love in a biblical creationist worldview. 
None of those things exist in a naturalistic evolutionary worldview. Here's what Scripture tells us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy had begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We have hope because our Lord lives. We have justice because our Lord took our punishment on the cross. We have forgiveness available through the cross. And we have the ability and power to live godly lives because God gives us his Holy Spirit who empowers us to do those things, to live out the way we're supposed to live out our lives, to love one another, to love our enemies, to love our neighbors. Is there anybody that is outside of that group? That's everybody. That's what we're called to do, right? Share the truth of God's word, to share the gospel with those who need to hear it, and to live our lives in such a way that brings honor and glory to our creator. And this whole debate, this creation evolution thing, it, it's much more than just a side issue. It informs everything about who we are and what we believe in this world and how this world should function. But the atheist is not my enemy. They're deceived by the enemy. They are people who are made in God's image and they're worth going after. So let's love one another. Let's show them who Jesus is. Let's show them through our love for one another. Didn't Jesus say something like that? All men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And how often do we fail that at the church? Okay? And let's show the love of Christ to our enemies, to those we disagree with. Let's show the love of Christ to our neighbor. And then maybe they'll want to know who this God is because instead of seeing us fighting and bickering all the time, they'll see genuine love, something that they don't usually get to experience very often. How does that sound? Sound like a good plan? All right, well, I could keep on rambling, but I know I've got to get to the other place too. Rich, let me have you finish up. Thank you so much, Tim. What Tim does so well is we already believe. Did you, did you like believe something you didn't believe before? We already believe this stuff, but what he does so well is presents in such a way it's like, yes, I'm, I'm more certain of what I believe uh, because of that evidence, because of the, the comparison uh, between the worldviews. And the best response to increased certainty in what you believe is always worship and obedience. That's what Tim was saying, uh, to love others. Uh, so the question might be from this morning is, because you're more certain about what you believe, is there anything you need to stop doing that you have been doing that doesn't accord with who God is how he's made us? Is there something you need to start doing for uh, the same reasons, loving your enemy, whatever that is? I'm going to uh, ask you to stand uh, for a final closing prayer. Remind you that we do have refreshments downstairs, so I'd love anybody to, to hang around and, and join us. Uh, but let's address the Lord here as we close. Father, what perfection in you and what, uh, what you've uh, created, it's, it's it's unfathomable. Uh, so thank you for just uh, this beautiful reminder of who you are and what you have done and that there's a line in the sand that because of that, everything else the world says almost is, is just wrong. It's incompatible with who you are and what you've done. So may that change us today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.